I have several references that I will point to later. I don't have an opening text that I'd like to choose, but I have other places I'd like to bring your attention to as we move into this lesson. The fourth in a series of lessons entitled, In the Last Days, I did wrestle with the idea of knowing what to do for Mother's Day and perhaps departing from this theme that I've been preaching on for this, the fourth week. But after spending time with the Lord and searching my heart and mind for God's direction for today, I will stay with this theme of the end time and the coming of the Lord. And uh, if you must have a Mother's Day sermon, just absolutely, I have several in my file in the office and I'll copy one off for you and take care of you that way too. I want to introduce this lesson this morning on terrorism and Islam in the context of why I began this series of lessons. The first Sunday I spoke to you on signs and behaviors that announced the coming of the Lord. Because I genuinely believe by reading the Bible, by looking at prophecy and hearing and reading the news, that the Lord is coming soon. I told you then on the second Sunday why the nation of Israel, the center of world attention before the Lord's, Lord comes, will not be Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, or London, England. It will be Israel. And why Israel is important to the coming of the Lord. And then last Sunday I told you why oil, petroleum, oil, and the byproducts of oil like gasoline and its cost and its plentifulness or lack of plentifulness is important to the coming of the Lord. And then I'm I'm commissioned by the Spirit this morning to give you a teaching on terrorism and Islam and how that relates to the coming of the Lord. And I will do more teaching than preaching perhaps for most of this lesson. And while I, I appreciate the response of the church when the message is given, sometimes I've allowed myself to be programmed to whether the response is good or not, of how well I'm doing. But I've got a teaching to give you, and I'm not going to be based on what my flesh feels, but I want to give you some truths that will help you discern error and not be blinded in these last days. I owe a lot of credit to several writers and researchers and teachers for this series of lessons, particularly this morning, Dr. David Jeremiah and his work in regards to The End Times, his book, What in the World is Going On. I owe a lot of credit to his research, and so I say that up front. But as I contemplate the introduction of this lesson, I, in my reading, discovered the words of a man by the name of Georges Sada, S-A-D-A, or it may be Sada, who... It's not long ago written a book entitled Saddam's Secret, meaning Saddam Hussein's Secrets. The subtitle is this, How an Iraqi General Defied and Survived Saddam Hussein. Mr. Sada was an Air Force General under Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Though ethnically he was an Iraqi, he was not a Muslim but rather he was an Assyrian Christian. Because he refused to join the Bardis or the Ba'athist party, Saddam Hussein's political party, because he refused to join that party, he was blocked promotion to higher ranks of power. 
Nonetheless, he was a military hero in Iraq, and he was their top Air Force pilot. He was also the man that Saddam Hussein would call on when he wanted to hear the truth about the military because Saddam Hussein knew that some of his yes men would tell him what he wanted to hear and not the truth. In this book, Saddam's Secret, How an Iraqi General Defied and Survived Saddam, Mr. Sada speaks about the spreading impact of Islam around the world. I quote, he said, I'm often asked about militant Islam and the threat of global terrorism. More than once, I've been asked about the meaning of the Arabic words Fatah and Jihad. When I normally, what I normally tell them is that to followers of militant brand of Islam, these doctrines express the belief that Allah has commanded them to conquer the nations of the world, both by cultural invasion and by the sword. In some cases, this means moving thousands of Islamic believers from their country to foreign lands by building mosques and changing the culture from the inside out and by refusing to assimilate or adopt the beliefs of that nation in which they have moved. In other words, what Mr. Sada is saying is that the revolution, the Islamic revolution that has taken place in the Middle East and even in Europe is not just localized to those continents. He said their ultimate goal is the conquest of the West and even America. And they have two ways of doing it. Fatah, F-A-T-A-H, and Jihad. I'll talk about Jihad in a moment. But Fatah is known as a way of infiltrating, migrating to non-Muslim countries. And for example, here in the United States, bringing their doctrine, bringing their belief, bringing their teachings and their customs and lifestyles. And taking advantage of the freedoms in America that they did not have in their Islamic dominated countries. And imposing their doctrines upon one's culture. And even using the freedoms here and our taxpayers' money to give them liberties to carry out some of their diabolical beliefs in a land that has afforded them opportunity that other places did not. And so they propagate their religion in a more subtle way other than jihad. He said in his book, they won't stop by appeasement, the spread of Islam. They are not interested in political solutions. They don't want welfare. Their animosity is not caused by hunger or poverty or anything of the sort. They understand only one thing. Total and complete conquest of the West and anyone who does not bow down to them and their dangerous, out-of-date ideology of hate and revenge. He further says in his book, that Americans do not seem to take the threat of Islam seriously, even after 9-11. Now, that to me is very true of where we are in our culture and our understanding of Islam. And so what I want to do is to help you see this morning the contrast of Christianity and Islam. And I want you to also see why Islam is such a Viable force in these last days in our world. 
So let me give you a little history, please. First of all, the word Islam means submission. Therefore, a Muslim is one who submits to God. We are told that there are over 1.3 billion Muslims in the world today. There are 5 million Muslims here in the United States of America. And you might think that the largest concentration of Muslims would be in the Middle East. And while there's a large number of Muslims in the Middle East, the largest concentration, however, is not there, but actually in Asia. The founder of Islam is none other than Muhammad. Muhammad, we are told, was born in the city of Mecca, which is now in present-day Saudi Arabia. He was born in the year A.D. 570. His parents, his father died before he was born, and his mother died when he was age six, and he was brought up by one of his paternal grandfather. Muhammad worked as a merchant until the age of 26 when he married a wealthy woman by the name of Khadija. Khadija was 40 years old when she married Muhammad. Muhammad was 26. She had been divorced four times. Maybe she hoped to get it right the fifth. They had six children in their union. Because she was rather wealthy, she helped him to propagate the new religion that would become to, come to be known as Islam. While he was growing up in Mecca, in his boyhood, in his youth, in his young adult years, he was exposed to numerous religious influences in Mecca. And according to his own testimony, he received what he considered to be a divine revelation while meditating in a cave at age 40. He said the revelations from God, according to his testimony, continued throughout his life. And they were eventually compiled into a book that is now known as the Quran. The Quran is regarded by Muslims as the Word of God. They are then the revelations, he says, of God through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad. In his culture and day, there were 360 different gods. One God for every day of their lunar calendar. Since Muhammad needed a God for this new religion to back up his revelation, he chose the God, moon God, whose name is Allah. His family had an affinity to the one of the 360 gods whose name was Allah, and Muhammad chose Allah as his God for his religion. History shows us that as Muhammad's followers grew in number, they slaughtered everyone in their path, who would not testify that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Muhammad and his followers, because of persecution in Mecca and the violence with which they propagated this new faith, had to flee from Mecca to another Arab city called Medina. And there in Medina, in the year 631, he established the first known Muslim community. One year later, he died. Immediately after his death, this new religion splintered. What happened was, there was a pursuit for a follower of Muhammad. And some of this new religion began following one of his uncle, uncles whose name was Abu Bakr. And they became known as the Sunni Muslim sect, S-E-C-T. And they believed that... That Muhammad himself passed down his blessings on Abu Bakr. And they also believe, however, that the highest form of spiritual gifting 
to any prophet came to Muhammad. Matter of fact, Saddam Hussein was of the sect of the Sunnis. The other major branch of Islam is known as the Shiites. They identified with one of Muhammad's nephews whose name was Ali, A-L-I. The Shiites believe that their leaders, their spiritual leaders whom they call imams, I-M-A-M-S, imams, have spiritual authority equal to their holy book, the Quran. They also believe that the twelfth imam was concealed hundreds of years ago, but is still alive. And they believe that one day this twelfth imam will be revealed as their Messiah, their Savior. They call him the Mahdi, M-A-H-D-I. So what happens is, is even though Islam is 1.3 billion strong in the world, there are two kinds of Islam, Sunni and Shiite. And even though they're one religion, they have great contention among them as a group of religious people. I would like to talk for a moment about the habits of Islam. The devout Muslim is called to five particular disciplines that demonstrates his devotion to Allah. He's first called to recite the Shahada. The Shahada is the Muslim creed. And this is it. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. In their prayers, Muslims repeat this over and over like a mantra. There's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. The second of their requirements as a disciple is to pray. Muslims pray five times each day. Their call to prayer usually comes from one of the followers of this religion who is located in a minaret, one of the towers that surround the mosque, which is the holy place for Muslims' worship. If you've ever been to a Muslim-dominated country, then you, in the business of your day, if you're in the proximity of a mosque, will hear, because of amplification and sound systems, you can even now hear it for miles, the wafting or wailing or moaning or groaning in Arabic of a call to prayer. It happens five times a day. Early morning, mid-morning, afternoon, sunset, and one hour after sunset. Now I'll tell you something. I don't have any admiration for the doctrine of Islam, but I do have an admiration for their call to prayer. And I believe myself, as well as many Christians, can say, you know what? We can do a better job at praying than just these little casual prayers that we do sometimes. When a Muslim is called to prayer five times a day, they are to bow down on the ground and position their body in the direction of their holy city, Mecca. And they are to have some kind of purification process by way of water. And if water is not there, they have to purify themselves by way of sand. The third, if you will, of their practice is to fast. The holy month of Ramadan, usually in our calendar, is the month of September. For one solid month, they have to fast from sunrise to sunset every day. And they are to give themselves to meditation and to self-searching and to their devotion to their God, Allah, and His Prophet, Muhammad. At the end of Ramadan, they have a big feast and celebration after coming through that time. Fourthly, Muslims are called to give alms. 
That is to give a charitable gifts to the poor and the needy. They're required to give at least one fortieth of their income, but even more than that, to help and minister to the needy and those among them who are deprived. And then the fifth of their habits is to make the pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. It's called a Hajj. H-A-A-J. Hajj, meaning that anybody who is a devout Muslim, who desires to be a devout Muslim, at least one time in their life, if they're physically able and financially able, must make a trip from wherever they live in the world to Saudi Arabia, the holy city of Mecca. It usually takes a week or ten days because on their way to Mecca, they will stop by other shrines and holy places of the Muslim and Islam faith. So there you have their habits. Now, we don't have a lot of contention and difference with them to this point. But it gets a little more intense when you consider the hatred of Islam. And the question is asked then, is Islam a peaceful religion? And when I contemplated that question, knowing what I've known from the past, living here in America, knowing that we have been introduced to jihad, which is a word that many of us didn't know 10, 15 years ago. What's a jihad? Can I get it in blue or black? Or does it come toasted or grilled? We didn't know what a jihad was. But because as a result of the 9-11-2001 terrorist Islamic extremists using planes to destroy over 3,000 lives in New York City and the Twin Towers, we have come to discover that the man who called for that jihad was none other than Osama bin Laden. And so you have to just look at the facts and you get an answer already that Islam is not necessarily a peaceful religion. Let, let me give you a little more information here. A man by the name of Riza Safa, who is a former radical Shiite, writes a foreword in the book written by Don Richardson entitled The Secrets of the Quran. And this convert from radical Shiite Muslim faith, Riza Safa, asked the question, if Islam is a peaceful religion, then why did Muhammad engage in 47 battles? Why in every campaign, the Muslim armies have fought throughout history, they have slaughtered men, women, and children who did not bow their knees to the lordship of Islam? The reign of terror of such men like Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Ayatollah Khomeini, Idi Amin, and many other Muslim dictators are modern examples of how not peaceful Islam is. If Islam is a peaceful religion, why are there so many verses in the Quran about killing the infidels and those who resist Islam? In Islam's eyes, Jews and Christians are the infidels. In Islam's eyes, anybody who will not admit to Allah being God and Muhammad is prophet are infidels. They don't care whether you're red, yellow, black, white, or brown. If Islam, he asked the question, is peaceful, why isn't there even one Muslim country that will allow freedom of religion and speech? Not one. If Islam is peaceful, who then is imparting this awful violence to hundreds of Islamic groups throughout the world who kill innocent people in the name of Allah? So I think you have some answers. In this thing of the hatred of Islam, there is the struggle they call the lesser jihad and another struggle they call the greater jihad. 
the lesser jihad is more spiritual in its reference. It has to do with the struggle of a person who is a convert to Islam in trying to submit to Allah. Maybe it can be compared to you and I as a Christian after we are born again, how Satan would come even after we're saved to tempt us to go back to sin. Am I right? And don't we all as Christians have temptations and struggles, spiritual struggles? Well, they, they, call it, they call it the lesser jihad in their religion. But the greater jihad in their religion has to do with the outward defending of the Muslim religion and culture. It has to do with the call, if you will, of their leaders, especially those in the radical Islamic tradition, to spread their religion no matter what it takes and by whatever means is necessary. The Muslim hatred for Israel began in the year 1948, May 14, when Israel officially became a nation recognized by the United Nations and, of course, by the rest of most of the world. And because America is an ally to Israel, Americans have become targets of jihad as well as Israel. We are told... That of the 1.3 billion Muslims in the world, 15 to 20% of them are committed to radical Islamic traditions and teachings that calls for what is known as the culture of death. 15 to 20% of the 1.3 billion means over 300 million Muslims say I am ready and willing to strap a bomb to myself and die in the name of Allah and get the highest honor because according to the Muslim teaching, the highest honor that you can get in their heaven is to kill yourself while killing infidels in the process. And over 3 million have said that they are, pardon, 300 million have said that they can be so committed. I am saying this to you this morning to tell you that there are those out there who are promoting political correctness and the unification of all faiths and saying we all believe the same thing and teach all the same thing and going to all the same heaven. And that is absolutely heresy. It is not true. And we Americans and we Christians must realize that just because we are kind and generous and appeasing does not give the rights of any of our enemies to come in and impose upon us their agenda, especially their culture of death. Somebody ought to say amen. Let me talk for a moment about the hopes of Islam. Islam hopes to rule the world, church. Their ultimate goal is to cover the globe with the teachings of Muhammad and to bring all people into submission of Allah. In 1979, 179 Americans were taken hostage in the country of Iran at the height of the religious Muslim leader's reign, Ayatollah Khomeini. Many of you remember it. They were held hostage. They held hostage the greatest military might in the world at that time, the United States of America, and shook their fingers in our face and dared us to come and get our citizens. And they were held for 444 days. And it's then we realize that these Islamic extremists will do whatever it takes 
to get their message and have world domination. Ayatollah Khomeini, who was a mentor to now President Ahmadinejad in Iran. Ahmadinejad has been a follower of Ayatollah Khomeini. Ayatollah Khomeini said at the height of his power, he's now deceased, but he said the governments of the world should know that Islam cannot be defeated. Islam will be victorious in all the countries of the world, and Islam and the teaching of the Quran will prevail all over the world. They intend not just to come in and enjoy our freedoms and buy our groceries and drive our cars and live in our... They intend to take over. Islam's hope is to return their Messiah. When Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, was invited to the United Nations in 2005 to explain to the United Nations why it is that he is proceeding with the development of nuclear power, he opened his prayer in Arabic to Allah. He wasn't invited to pray, but he prayed. Isn't it amazing? In our country... Our country, we can't even let our kids pray in school or pray at ball games or pray. But here comes them with their stuff. All right, I'm trying to be civil here. It's Mother's Day. Mother's Day. But I got to tell you the danger. And in his prayer, he asked Allah to hasten the return of the Mahdi, the Muslim's Messiah, the 12th Imam. In his prayer, he called him the perfect and pure human being. The one that will fill the world with justice and peace. Ahmadinejad believes with these Shiite Muslims that the twelfth imam will return to the world during a time of worldwide chaos. And so Ahmadinejad believes that in order to hasten the return of the 12th Imam, the Messiah, it's his job to create the chaos in the world, thus to usher in their Messiah. And don't fool yourself. They're not developing nuclear power just to generate lights and engines. This same man, Ahmadinejad, is a near kin by way of hate, and not natural blood and biology, but a near kin by way of hate to the likes of Adolf Hitler. This president of Iran, you listen to the news, you look at it, you read the paper, if you, you don't have to take me as evidence. I'm just, I'm just a voice crying out in the wilderness. But based on fact, the same man said that Israel does not deserve to be on this planet. His job is to wipe out Israel from the face of the earth. It was the same thought of Saddam Hussein who built nuclear weapons or nuclear uh, plant in Iraq. And in the 80s, Israel knew that they were their devout enemies, Iraq. And Israel with its fighter planes without asking permission from anybody. I want to tell you something. If somebody's out to get you and you know it and they're bragging about and coming to get you, uh, you, you know, you're either going to be born last night and hide your head in the sand and not protect yourself, or Israel is not waiting for the United Nations to give them approval. Israel's not waiting for Washington, D.C. to give them approval. They have a right to protect their citizens and they take seriously the true threat of this madman. 
And so what Ahmadinejad is trying to do here is to create the return of the Mahdi. And let me say this to you. All of this falls into biblical prophecy. Not just not to repeat myself from last week, but just to highlight right here. I told you last week that in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, the Bible talks about the alliances of nations, the coming together of nations that hitherto did not come together because they had such differences and independence. And in, 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 in Ezekiel 38, the Bible talks about nations from the north of Israel. Are you all still with me here? Israel's right here in the Middle East. Russia is here. Iran is here. Iraq is here. Syria is here. Jordan is here. Everybody still with me? The Bible talks about in the last days, one of the signs that we know the Lord's coming is soon is that nations will align themselves with Russia and they will march down in the largest army the world has ever seen, over two million strong, and they are more than that, and they will march down to come and destroy Israel for the hate they have for Israel. And what has happened is... The Bible talks about countries like, and back then they didn't have the modern names they had now, but the Bible talks about Gog and the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, which is now modern day Russia, Meshach and Tubal and Persia, Ethiopia and Libya and other countries back then that, that the names have changed now, Goma and Targamar. Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 has to do with the nation of Russia. I told you last week that as of 1925... Until 1925, Persia was the name of Iran. But after 1925, Iran chose its name as Iran. And before that time, and even in recent history, Iran and Russia had no alliances. They didn't like each other. They hated each other. But in recent history, in the last 10 years, Russia and Iran have partnered together. Over 1,000 Iranian nuclear scientists have been trained in Russia by Russian nuclear scientists. It's not because they're trying to be buddies. They're trying to arm themselves to come against what they call their enemy, infidels and Israel and America. It is the Word of God. And your job and my job is to pray and ask God to guard us and help us to be ready and get other people ready for the coming of Jesus. There are other alliances. Oil will cause nations to come together in the Middle East and in other parts of the world. So I share that with you, not to try to scare you to death, but to tell you, you are living in the last of the last days. Let me, let me hasten then to see if I can wrap it up by giving you some cautions when it comes to how to regard Islam. Pastor, what's that got to do with me and my faith in God and me living here and now? Several things. Because, listen to me, church. The only people that are called to share the gospel are not preachers. Matter of fact, there are just no exclusive groups that are called to share the gospel and the faith in Jesus Christ. My job is to train you to share your faith. Somebody say amen. And your job is to train somebody else who come to faith to share their faith. And your job is to pass your faith on to your children. And they pass it on to their children. Somebody say amen. Every one of us are ambassadors and teachers and preachers. You may get all this content here this morning. You're thinking, why do I need all this? Because God is raising you up if you are born again to testify to a Muslim or a non-Muslim or to American or Canadian or Mexican or European. God's giving you a mouth and a testimony of how to get yourself ready and get people around you ready for the unannounced soon return of Jesus Christ. 
He's not announcing the day He's coming. He's not announcing the hour He's coming. He's not telling us the day or the hour, but He's giving us signs in the heavens, on earth, in nations, in government, in our world. And He says, when you see these things begin to come to pass, lift up your head for your redemption is near. Somebody praise the Lord. You know what's tragic? What's tragic is we know so much in our lives about God and Satan robs us from the opportunity of sharing it. Amen. What's tragic is not only does Satan rob us, but we get so intimidated and we don't share it. God doesn't intend for Alan Matura to come to heaven alone if he could bring somebody else. God doesn't intend for Alan and Valerie to bring their children and come to heaven alone if I could bring some of you. The same is for you. It's not enough for you to be saved and your wife or children. It's enough, not enough that anybody at all should miss heaven. But here's some truth you need to know. Number one. Do not compare Islam with Christianity. It is not the same thing. This nonsense about we all serving the same God and Allah is the name we call Him and you call Him Jehovah and Christianity has their Bible and we have the Quran. It's all the same thing. It is not the same thing. Do your homework. Read the Bible. Read the Quran. There are distinct differences. Jesus said in John 14 and 6, you might want to write it down. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You don't come through Allah or Muhammad or Hinduism or Buddhism. Jesus is the only way. Yes, He's the only way. Somebody says, you're rather bigoted, aren't you? You're rather prejudiced to announce that Christianity is the only way. No, I'm rather biblical. No one has proved his existence more than Jehovah God. No other religion has a savior like Jesus Christ. No other religion has a prophet or a God who died for the sins of mankind. Only this word has given us a savior. He is worthy of our affection. Somebody praise the Lord. Yes. I want you to be politically correct. I want you to have Islamic friends. Not all Muslims are haters of Americans and Jews. Not all, all Muslims are radical. But you know what bothers me? It bothers me that so many moderate Muslims are so quiet when terrorism comes and destroys innocent people. It bothers me that more Muslim clerics and more Muslims in America, different parts of the world, who are not extremists, who are not getting on television or on the radio or magazines and writing of how atrocious this is. Let me compare it to something that you and I lived in. You remember Mr. Rudolph? I don't know if I should call him Mr., but his last name is Rudolph, or maybe his first name when he did these bombings in abortion clinics. How many of you remember what I'm talking about? His disgust for abortion and the murdering of babies in their mother's womb was such that he felt justified by bombing clinics. And let me tell you something. It would have been terrible if we Christians didn't address that. But we did. When clinics were bombed, you have men like James Dobson, focus on the family. Men like James Kennedy, Coral Ridge Ministries, going to be with the Lord. Men like Jay Sukolo, who is the uh, American Center for Law and Justice, who got on the TV, got on the radio. You got men like, like uh, Pat Robinson, who said, listen, we are against abortion. But it's never right to take your opposition to abortion and murder somebody else or kill somebody else. Never can two wrongs make a right. 
Somebody say amen. And Christians everywhere said, that is not the way to suppress abortion. we got to pray for them and love them. And that's what I'm saying about Islam. We need to hear some more voices of moderate Muslims who say, listen, this extremist stuff, this killing and murdering and using airplanes and attaching oneself to bombs and destroying innocent life is not true Islam. If in case it isn't true. So we have a problem. You can't compare both religions. Somebody say amen. Christians do not call for the genocide of a particular race of people like the Jews. Muslims do. Extreme Muslims, I should say. Christians do not send suicide bombers to kill innocent people. Radical Muslims do. Christians do not work for worldwide chaos in order to stage the return of their Messiah. No. Radical Shiite Muslims do. Christians work for the salvation of Muslims. But radical Shiite Muslims call for jihad against those who don't agree with them. So don't tell me they're the same thing. Somebody asked me at the end of the second service, what about this interfaith community prayer and things that take place? Well, you have a Muslim and you have a Christian and you have a Jew and you have a Buddhist and you have and they come together to pray for world peace. What do you think about that? I think I want no part of it. Oh, that's political show. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the day where you draw the line in the sand and you announce your faith. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword, meaning there's going to be division against mother and daughter, father and son, home and families and children and parents, because you announced that you are on God's side. But he said, in this world you shall suffer persecution, but be of good cheer. I have overcome this world. No, no, this interfaith stuff where this Muslim pray and this Christian pray and this Jew, what that says about your participation in it is, I just believe your God's my God, my God's your God. And that's not, that, that is not the case. Do not compare Islam with Christianity. I, I, I tell you that because they are two different things. We're not walking side by side Islam and Christianity down the same road, getting the same place. No, we're walking in opposite directions. Let me show you something else. Do not consider Allah as God. You see, the Bible says in Psalm 86 and 10, you want to write this reference down so you can share it with somebody else. Psalm 86 and 10 says, you alone are God. <laughs> they are not the same God, Allah and Jehovah. Their character and teachings are so different, they could not be the same God. Allah was chosen by Muhammad out of a myriad of 360 gods to be his God. Nobody chose God and said, you can be God with my permission. I'm not Jehovah God. Which one of us were there when there was no light and he said, let there be light? Which, oh, I feel a hot glory, but, but I'm too dignified. It's Mother's Day. And... Which one of us was there? Where was Muhammad when he said, let the sun shine by day and the moon by night? Which one of us was there? Where was Muhammad and his God Allah when God said, this is as far as you come in ocean and this is as far as you go in land? Uh, somebody help me. There, there is no comparison. You see, what I want you to know is Allah is not a Trinitarian God. The, the, the Quran teaches against the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost is Jehovah's God's makeup. 
A Trinitarian God simply means that God exists in three persons and yet the same God and in unity. Let me show you what I mean. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. God sent his son, Jesus. Jesus became God for a season of time on the earth, but he's always God at all times, even now. But he came as our Savior. The second of the Trinity is Jesus, our Savior, and now our intercessor, repeating our prayers to God. And the third person of the Trinity is God the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, I'm leaving this world. I'm going back to prepare your place, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send you the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, and He will guide you into all truth. Yeah. Now let me tell you something. I'm not talking about we having three gods. I'm talking about three in one. Allah didn't die for man's sin. He didn't die for nobody. Jehovah sent the Son of God to die for man's sin. Allah says, kill those who don't believe and you come to heaven. God, Jehovah, died for those who don't believe so that they can go to heaven. Well, somebody say amen. Amen. Let me show you something else. Don't confuse jihad with salvation. Jihad said you've got to work your way to get. And part of that work jihad says is, If you strap a bomb to yourself and walk in a cafe of Jews or infidels or Americans or wherever else, it's not just Israel and America. It's been in, it's happened in India. It's happened in Indonesia. It's happened in in, in Spain. It's happened in England on buses and trains. Anybody hearing me? I'm talking about extremists. Either they plant one on themselves or they remote it somehow. And and their God says to, to men, the highest honor of your reward in Allah's heaven is if you kill yourself in the spread of Islam, you'll get 70 virgins for your pleasure in your heaven. What kind of value is that on women, anyhow? That all they could be seen as is servants of the sexual pleasure of murderers in heaven. There is no truth to that. Will they, won't they be amazed? I don't mean this unkindly, but won't they be amazed with the flames of torment as opposed to the promise of lies? And why one man would want 70 women is beyond me. I just move on. Okay, okay. I, sh- I should have left that alone. I should have. I got in the flesh. Pray for him, Lord. Listen. Write this reference down. Titus 3 and 5 says about salvation. Titus 3 and 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Listen to me. Christianity says you don't don't work for it. God finished the work at Calvary. Now after you get saved, you're going to work for Him, but not for salvation. After you get saved, you're going to want to love and forgive and give and give up sin because you'll have such love for Christ for saving you when nobody else would have you. He brought you in by His mercy and grace. Oh, you, you may have dressed up real nice to look good for mama today. You may look like little Lord Funkleroy, but that ain't saving you. No. 
You, you, you may have degrees and letters after your name that goes about a paragraph long. And I'm not against education, but that ain't saving you. You may be cut from a family tree and your genealogy may go back to some rich inheritance or some popular name in world history. But that ain't saving you. It ain't who you know or what you can buy or where you've been or who you are cooked up with. It is by God's mercy and by God's grace that when you didn't choose God, He chose you anyhow. Somebody praise him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and gave us the right to reject him. But whoever believes on his name shall be saved. That's Christian. You don't work for it. One convert from Muslim, from Islam, a Palestinian liberation organization, bomber. PLO, worked with the PLO, was saved gloriously some years ago, and he said this. In Islam, the only way to get to heaven is to die as an offering to God. In Christianity, Jesus died in our place so that we might go to heaven. Don't confuse jihad with salvation. Let me, let me give something else real quick. Don't connect the Quran with the Bible. There is no comparison. No. This is God's inspired word. Listen, given to 40 different writers over 1,400 years. 1,400 years of inspiration, 40 different authors, 66 books from page 1 of Genesis, the first book, to the final page of Revelation, the last book inspired by the Holy Ghost. There is one theme that runs through this Bible, one theme through every book of the Bible. Though some authors never knew the other authors and they have hundreds of years of difference, they just picked up their pen under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and began to write. They didn't know they were writing. The one theme throughout the Bible is salvation, salvation salvation whosoever will let him come one thing the Quran however was given to an illiterate man Muhammad couldn't read or write it was said he all the revelations came through one man and since he couldn't read and write he had to say what he heard to somebody else and there are all kinds of discrepancies tell me what book will tell you you could get to heaven by murdering innocent men, women, and children that would be worthy of your time or your affection. But do the homework. There's no comparison. Don't compare the Bible. The, 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 the Muslims say that the Bible is subservient to the Quran. Wrong. The Quran didn't start to exist till after the year 632. This book was being authored Long hundreds of years before Christ came on the scene. Hundreds of years. And everything this book said about Jesus coming and dying and being buried and resurrected has come to pass. And the rest of the story will come to pass. Because soon and very soon he's going to adorn himself with a robe of righteousness and a sword in his hand. And he's going to bring the armies of heaven with him. And he is going to come as king of kings and lord of lords. Somebody praise him here. Oh, help me, Jesus. I got one more thought. Do not conclude that all Muslims will be lost. Somebody say amen. amen. Hey, God saved you, didn't he? Amen. <laughs>
You were an enemy of God. Your name might not have been Osama bin Laden, whatever his name is. But you are a sinner away from God. Do not conclude that all Muslims are going to be lost. Because in these years of preparation for the coming of the Lord, God has used different media and means and men and women to spread the gospel in the Islamic world. Now, you have to be real careful because the culture of Islam, extreme Islam, would kill their own people. They'll kill any convert to Christianity. Behead them. And yet, through the underground church, through missionaries and otherwise, you'd be amazed of how many Muslims have come to Christ and are devout. One of the ways that God has been using to reach Muslims is through dreams and visions. Because where the gospel is prohibited by way of the media or the presence of an evangelist or pastor, God's going to find a way. How many know God spoke to the Apostle Paul through dreams and visions? How many know God spoke to Joseph through dreams and visions? I'm talking about Joseph in the Old Testament and Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Some of you have been visited by the Lord by dreams and visions. And there's one account in David Jeremiah's book that tells of the conversion of a Muslim, a Saudi Arabian Muslim to Christianity that gives me hope. And while I've had my issues in my own personal prayer about how to pray for Muslims because of how atrocious and blatant the radical Muslim is, I've asked the Holy Spirit to temper me, to understand that salvation is free. And God, according to 1 Peter, is not willing that any should perish. Red, yellow, black, white, brown. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The testimony is of a Saudi Arabian who was born in the city of Mecca, which is the holy city of, for the Muslim. And this gentleman grew up in this holy city with mosques and shrines and call to prayer. So predominant. By his own testimony, he says, For many nights, he had a terrifying nightmare in which he was being taken down into hell. Night after night, he would dream that. He said this dream was always vivid and horrifying. And it destroyed his peace night after night. Suddenly, one evening, Jesus appeared in his dream and said to him, Son... I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you'll give your life to me, I will save you from the hell that you've been dreaming of and having nightmares about. Well, this young man knew something a little bit about Jesus because of the distorted teachings of the Quran that he had read. But he didn't know the Jesus of the New Testament. So he started looking for somebody to explain to him this Jesus who appeared to him in his dreams. And told him that he was the life. And because it's a Muslim country, Saudi Arabia, he had to be very careful. Because anyone 
Again, like I said earlier, who testifies to being saved, a Christian, could lose their life. And eventually he found an Egyptian Christian. And this Egyptian Christian gave him a Bible, which he began reading. And as he read the Bible, he came to the New Testament and he discovered the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the stories of Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament. And when he read about the stories of Jesus and the saving grace of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and why he died, he totally gave his heart to Jesus Christ. But what happened is, not long after that, an opponent of his discovered that he was a Christian and told the authorities and they arrested him. They put him in jail and they tortured him repeatedly. They put him in jail and as a result of conditions that were intolerable, attempted to try to get him to deny his faith in Jesus Christ, but he would not. And because he would not, they sentenced him to be beheaded, die in the not too distant future. On the morning of his scheduled execution, no one showed up to escort him from his cell. Two days later, the authorities threw open his cell door and screamed at him by saying, You demon, get out of this place. And they let him go free. You can call me what you want to, demon, devil, whatever, but as long as my head's on my shoulder when I leave, I'm okay. The man later learned, he later learned that his execution had not taken place because on the very day he was to be beheaded, the son of his accuser had mysteriously died. Now, you can say what you want to, but God will defend his own. Yes, he will. So, let me say this in closing. Don't hate the Muslims. Don't put them all in the same category. Because we're told by those who know the best way to win an enemy is to make them a friend. Yeah. You and I are on a mission. Bow your heads, please. And that mission include, includes knowing in your heart that if you were to die today, or Jesus came, you would have fulfilled your life's calling by choosing Jesus and inheriting eternal life. I am not going to belabor this. I'm going to ask the Christians to whisper a prayer. I need you to pray right now because all of which I gave you will go to vain if the Holy Spirit is not allowed to work in the hearts of those who need Christ. You say, Pastor Allen, I have not given my heart to Jesus. I am not living in a state of readiness this morning. If I die today or before Jesus comes, or if Jesus comes today, I know I won't go to heaven. And I do not want to miss heaven. And I do not want to fail God. I want to be saved. You say, Pastor, I used to be saved. But I'm living and have been living in such a way that I know is wrong. The Bible teaches against it. 
And yet I've justified my departure from the Lord and my behavior and lifestyle because I think I got plenty of time. And I want to ask God to forgive me and I want to come back home. Just like on a certain day, for you, some of us, many years ago, we were given natural birth through our mother. We had a birthday because of our mother. I wish that you would elect to have a birthday today because of your heavenly father. Pastor, I need to be saved. And I'm not going to wrestle with God's call any longer. If that's you, raise your hands. I want to be saved. Hold it up. Hold it up just a moment. Thank you. You may put them down. Okay. Pray, Christians. I'm not, this is not about putting you on a screen or TV or camera or embarrassing you. But this is about whose side you're on. Whose side are you on? If you just raised your hands or didn't raise your hand but wish you did and you want to be saved, just those who raised their hands or wish they did, you stand right now in Jesus' name. Stand where you, where you raise your hands. Yeah. Go ahead and give the Lord thanks for them if you'd like. I want to... Come on. Okay. Thank you. Head, head still bowed. Remain standing. Head still bowed. Eyes still closed. I'm waiting on a few more. Stand right now if you need to stand because you want to go to heaven. You want to accept salvation. You don't want to be deceived. I want everybody, especially those of you who are standing, to repeat this prayer after me. Everybody in the church and those who are standing out loud. Here we go. Lord Jesus, I confess I need you. I am a sinner. I realize I cannot save myself. No one else can save me. Only you, Jesus. I confess that you are the Lord. I receive your gift of salvation. Thank you for dying for me. Come into my life. Completely wash away my sins. Make me a new person inside and out. Beginning today. I will serve you. Deliver me from temptation and evil. Give me a love for you, a love for the Bible, and a love for all people. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for living in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, everybody else, put your hands together and thank the Lord. You may be seated. Go ahead. Everybody else, give the Lord thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. Well, we've got, we got to leave sometime. I guess this is good. What a mighty God we serve. You know, I do believe. Come, ushers, if you will. I want to receive the morning's offerings. I want the ushers to come. I do believe that just any day now, God's going to look at His Son and say, Now's the time. And we're going to leave. But you're ready. And I'm grateful.